You're listening to In Search of Portland. This is a personal journey, exploring the Rose City's architectural and cultural landmarks, forgotten gems, and the dreamers who populate them. My name is Brian Libby, and I've spent 20 years writing about local architecture and the arts. On season two of this podcast, we'll continue talking with a diverse group of creative minds and community leaders about how Portland became Portland and where we're headed. Thanks for joining us. After beginning season two of In Search of Portland with a parking lot, for this episode, we're turning our attention to a horse stable, but no ordinary one. We're talking about the Ladd Carriage House. Completed in 1883, it's located downtown on Broadway between Jefferson and Columbia Streets, and it's the only remaining building from the mansion and grounds of William Sargent Ladd, one of Portland's most prominent business and civic leaders of the 19th century. Just after the city was officially incorporated in 1851, a then 25-year-old lad arrived here from his native Vermont by way of San Francisco, an entrepreneur with a small consignment of liquor to sell. Just three years later, by 1854, lad had actually become the city's fifth mayor, and even today, he's still the youngest to have held that office, and the only person elected to two non-consecutive terms. In 1858, Ladd co-founded Oregon's first bank. He hadn't set out to be a banker, but during the panic of 1857, many of his liquor customers fell behind in their accounts. So Ladd began to loan them money, and he was quite successful at it, so much so that by 1860, Ladd and his family had moved into a stately Italianate-style mansion on 6th Avenue. Never mind that the Civil War was about to begin. Designed by E.M. Burton and expanded several times, the Ladd Mansion eventually had some 30 rooms. Its interior was paneled in rosewood and maple and mahogany. The back of the home faced present-day Broadway, and at the northwest corner of the property was a two-story circular greenhouse. Eventually, it was torn down. But the building next to it, the Ladd Carriage House, has remained, even though it wasn't even designed for humans. The Ladd Carriage House was designed by architect Joseph Sherwin, who came to Portland from Manchester, England, and unfortunately died shortly after the project's 1883 completion. The carriage house was necessary because Ladd later in life had become paralyzed from the waist down and thus depended on horse-drawn carriages to get around. Of course, the building is an anomaly today, Sitting beside the 23-story Ladd Tower and the 19-story Broadway Tower. But that's all the more reason it looks beautiful and unique. For much of the late 20th century, there were offices located in the Ladd Carriage House. But since its 2007 renovation, the building has been home to the wonderful Raven and Rose Restaurant and its Rookery Bar, both of which are closed right now, unfortunately, because of the pandemic but hopefully they'll be back soon. I especially like the Raven and Rose's traditional Sunday English roast dinners with Yorkshire pudding. Yum. To be honest, though, 
I don't feel like I can talk about the Ladd Carriage House without also talking about the building that for 90 years stood next door, the Rosefriend Apartments. Completed in 1910, the Rosefriend was a beautiful five-story U-shaped apartment building clad in red brick with creamy white bay windows. For decades, it provided affordable housing. But the same year the carriage house was restored, 2007, the Rosefriend apartments were demolished to make way for the Ladd Tower. On a personal note, this marked the first time I ever tried to get involved in saving a work of architecture, unsuccessful as that effort obviously was. I think it's worth noting that the Rosefriend demolition didn't come at the hands of a real estate developer looking to make a profit. It was instigated by First Christian Church, which owned the block and was motivated not so much by the tower itself, but underground parking for their congregation, which came with it. As the Reverend Rex Loy of First Christian Church explained, they were in the business of saving souls, not buildings. I guess the good reverend didn't believe that cities too have souls that can be saved or lost. He also may have forgotten that there were a lot of low-income folks displaced by the wrecking ball. Even so, there could easily have been two historic buildings wiped away from this site, and instead it was only one. And the one that remains is pretty much one of a kind. So today our first interview is with the man who, 15 years ago, led the crusade to save the Ladd Carriage House, architect Paul Falsetto, who has won awards for his thoughtful restorations of several local buildings. We'll talk to Paul about the long and winding road to saving the carriage house, or maybe I should say the short and narrow half block, because this rescue involved moving the carriage house down the street for a year and then gently putting it back. Our second interview is with interior designer Tracy Simpson, who led the interior restoration of the carriage house into the Raven and Rose restaurant. As beautiful as the exterior of this building may be, it's really the cozy feeling you get inside the carriage house that I enjoy the most, which is down to Tracy and her client, Chef Lisa Migrant. And if it's not possible to eat at the Raven and Rose right now, you can at least catch it on DVD. In 2013, an episode of the Portland-filmed NBC supernatural TV drama Grimm was filmed there. On the show, the city is teeming with supernatural beings known as Vesson, who can take human form. In this particular episode, the fictional male chef of the Raven and Rose is a pig-like Vesson creature called a Bauerschwein. He serves a fatal poison mushroom to a clandestine werewolf creature called a Blutbod, all as a take on the Little Red Riding Hood fable. In real life, the big bad wolves are really just covetous human beings, but thankfully there are heroes as well as villains in these woods. Paul Falsetto is here. He's an award-winning Portland architect specializing in historic building restorations. A sole practitioner, he was educated at the University of Oregon and the University of Washington before starting his own business and worked for some acclaimed Portland firms such as Fletcher Farr Ayat and Carlton Hart before heading out on his own. His projects include the award-winning Blockhouse Cafe in Dayton, Oregon, and he was also a co-founder of the Friends of Lad Carriage House, which in 2007 successfully convinced the historic building's owner not to tear it down and saw an ensuing restoration completed in 2012. Paul, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. 
Pleased to be here, Brian. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about uh, the the kind of context in which uh, the Lad Carriage House would have existed, uh, uh, being situated along the South Park blocks or or near it, uh, and right on Broadway as well, a pretty prominent location. And uh, um, I, I have a general understanding that this would have been originally a residential area. Is that right? That is right. It was mostly residential in nature. It was considered to be the outer city limits, right up into where you bang up into the West Hills. And it was where the residential portion of the city was growing as the downtown itself was growing and kind of pushing the residential buildings to the edges. Mm -hmm. Uh, You had a whole variety of building types. You had grand buildings. You had more modest buildings. And you had a number of churches there to serve the various denominations of folks living in that area. And you mentioned the South Park blocks. Uh, Daniel Lounsdale owned um, that tract. And for some wonderful reason, decided he was going to take this edge of the city in the narrow blocks that were platted and create parks there. Mm-hmm. When, why would you put parks out in the outer edge? Uh, it was the first uh, devoted park in the downtown Portland area. Huh. And that was back in about 1852. He dedicated those, but he owned those. Dedicated to city use, but he owned them. The city didn't own them for another 20 years. Yeah, yeah. It might have been a development ploy because then they parceled off a bunch of smaller lots around there for residences, and um, it was probably considered a nice amenity. And uh, a couple blocks away, uh, William S. Ladd had his house on a full block, um, which was facing Broadway. Mm -hmm. So he was in the neighborhood but had a big, big block himself. Yeah, yeah. And so maybe we could talk a little bit about William Ladd for a second. Uh, perhaps I'm biased because I've been, I, I, I've been living for 22 years or something in the neighborhood of Ladd's edition and been interested in the guy. But uh, if I'm not mistaken, he was twice uh, the mayor at a fairly young age, and he uh, was a self-made millionaire, I want to say. I, I think he started selling like liquor, had a bar, but then uh, eventually co-founded a bank. Uh, so what do you know about this guy, and uh, how would you— describe this man and and um what would a, where would he have been in his life uh when the carriage house was completed so i would describe him as a superstar in a way this guy could do everything and did do everything his contemporaries described him as industrious with a remarkable business acumen he was relatively modest and reserved and he had instilled in him a very healthy victorian social consciousness mm-hmm. He came to Portland in 1851. He came from Vermont by way of San Francisco at the age of 25. And it's interesting that he came with uh, a small consignment of liquor and a character reference from his hometown minister. <laughs> Even then, that sounds very Portland-like, doesn't it? That yeah. you'd have beer on one side and you know a character reference on the other side. Um, at that time, Portland was just incorporated, so mm-hmm. it was a muddy track on the Willamette with more tree stumps than people. So he came at a fortuitous time for him and for the city. He started a mercantile, and when you have a mercantile and there's a small depression, all of a sudden people can't pay you for goods. And so in a way, Ladd kind of backed into being uh, in, in the finance world because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. he was offering finance to get paid for his goods. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, things started very quickly for him from that point. So two years later, he commissioned Portland's first brick building. Uh, in 1854, as you mentioned, he became mayor, the fifth mayor of the city and the youngest still. He was about 28 years old. (laughs) He did it again three years later when the need arose. 
And in 1859, he became uh, co-owner of Portland's first bank, the Ladd and Tilton Bank. And that was a gorgeous building in its own right, wasn't it? It was. It was stupendous. So by this time, he's got two gorgeous buildings to his name. And uh, Ladd and Tilton is important because I consider Portland to be a banker's town. And uh, if you call, I also consider my hometown, Seattle, to be a, a developer town. Uh-huh. And they have different mentalities to them. And so in a banker's town, you have the guy who started the first bank. And based on that position of seeing money come and go, he started a, a series of investments in the earliest and most successful endeavors in, in the Portland area, including the Pacific Telegraph Company and the Oregon Steam Navigation Company. So his investments were based on finances and communication and transportation and agriculture and real estate development. Wow. And you mentioned you're from Ladd's Edition. Um, That was a farm of his that got converted into residences. And then he also owned Crystal Springs Farm out where now Reed College sits. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. What a guy. Um, uh, and do I remember also that, that William Ladd was uh, kind of like an Andrew Carnegie figure a little bit with uh, with some of the churches around uh, that area, the South Park blocks? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a pretty good analogy, Brian. He um, gave seed money for congregations to build their buildings. They, of course, would bring their congregation, their ministers, but he helped with the actual construction of the churches, seeing that as a good foundation for a young city. Uh, and it didn't even matter what the denomination was. So he's very generous that way. But I, I th- and, and he was generous in a lot of other ways too. But he was very generous with his time and his energy. Mm-hmm. He served on trusts and boards for a variety of Portland institutions. And, and I w- I'd like to mention a few of those. Um, these are institutions I call for the betterment of the city. And that was the Portland Waterworks. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Portland Hotel, uh, the library system, the Portland School District, and all manners of schools. And then he worked on the benevolent side of things, too. He gave money and time to the Boys and Girls Aid Society, the Children's Home for Orphans, and the Humane Society. It's funny, you know, we we are living in an age uh, of billionaires and and in an age when so many people control some so few people control so much wealth and yet even some of the uh billionaires of our own time uh uh you know Bezos or or uh Bill Gates or someone like that wouldn't have necessarily ever been able to go to one city and control or have a, a hand in so much with regard to telecommunications and transportation and real estate and education. You know, it, it speaks to the kind of opportunity opportunity there was to to literally be a city builder in a way you couldn't today unless you were, you know, starting on the moon or something. Exactly. It, it was fortuitous for both the city of Portland and for Ladd. And I think they both benefited from each other as well. Ladd would tithe himself 10% of his income annually for charity purposes. And even when he died, he had a trust fund of over half a million dollars to be spent. So he gave money living. He gave money when he was no longer living. He had the resources, the leadership, and the inclination to do all this for the benefit of his uh, citizens, his fellow citizens. Interesting. Interesting. You know, it makes me think of uh, one of my favorite movies, Citizen Kane. And, and you know, the, the whole question of that movie is is the kind of unfulfillment of wealth that Charles Foster Kane feels. And there are reasons for that, that he's an adoptee of sorts and, and he's lost touch with home and everything. And and so I wonder, you know, for a man that ambitious, what, what his, I, I know you, it's impossible for you to know the answer, but I just sort of 
openly wonder, you know, what what his demons were, what might have been driving him. What, you know, did he have a bad relationship with his father or something? You know, he came a long way from home. He he clearly must have wanted to get out of Vermont for some reason. Um, and, you know, some of that would have been the wide open opportunity of the West. But, you know, um, and I'm not questioning any of his kind of benevolence, but, you know, uh, it reminds me of something my partner says sometimes, like all of us are kind of 51% of one thing and 49% of another. And so, you know, I, I wonder what kind of secret asshole looked in William Ladd. I, I say that facetiously, you know, I don't mean to disrespect him, but, you know, um, he, I guess what I mean is he was ambitious, very ambitious. And he did so on behalf of this growing city in a way that we still admire and respect and appreciate today. But, but you know, a lot of people who are that ambitious have some some fire that's been lit inside them. Or, or that old uh, split personality adage of having a devil on one shoulder and an angel on another shoulder. I think at that period of time, it was not seen to be anachronistic to make money and do good. Mm-hmm. And I think they, they consider those to be kind of very tightly bundled together. And I, I get the sense that Ladd was that way as well. If he just gave away money, it'd be like paying a penitence. But that's not what he did. He gave time and energy. By all accounts, he was a, a, a modest, kind sort of person. Mm-hmm. And I think what we might have here is just a really good guy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think Portland was lucky to have him at that period of time. Well, I certainly love that uh, uh, I could practically be in outer space and still pick out my neighborhood, uh, uh, Lad's Edition, because of how it's laid out, this kind of traffic circle in the middle with streets radiating out in every direction. And for, you know, a couple of square miles or whatever it is, there's nothing else like it in the city. And you can spot it on a map instantly. And so, uh, you know, he wasn't just building tracks of homes. He wanted to do it with some kind of gusto. Gusto and a sense of um, heart and center. Mm-hmm. Lad's edition has a heart and a center to it. And that speaks well of somebody um, who's wanting to do something above and beyond. Absolutely. You know, experientially, that neighborhood is great just because you um, you avoid uh, cars a lot. Uh, it's not a good neighborhood to drive in. It's kind of like a maze you can get lost in, but it's got these tall trees and it's so walkable and full of rose gardens and parks. You know, it, it really speaks to somebody wanting to to build, not not just build a city, but build a beautiful city. And build a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, what's mm-hmm. interesting, Brian, is that um, Lad um, had a spinal injury when he was young. Mm-hmm. And when he got older, um, an infection uh, exacerbated it. And he lost the ability to walk. He was paralyzed from basically the belt down in his later years. Mm -hmm. And that's why having horses and carriages was so very important to him. They said after a hard uh, day of work, he would get in his carriage and ride around the city. And people would see him as a fixture going through the town in in his carriage with his beautiful horses. Wow. That seems almost kind of cinematic. (laughs) Yeah. There's like a Fellini movie where, uh, you know, maybe it's like uh, La Dolce Vita where like that helicopter is going around the city with like carrying a cross and uh, everybody's waving to it and everything. I could sort of think like William Ladd moving through the city, like, uh, you know, people waving to him and, you know, hey, Bill, you know. <laughs> yeah, sounds like some Scorsese would uh, choreograph me. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, speaking of which, let's turn our attention, if we, if I may, to uh, uh, the Lad Carriage House itself. And, uh, you know, it feels like a, even for an old building, it feels particularly unique, at least to my eyes, uh, not just because it's a 19th century horse stable on Broadway, although that's pretty crazy, uh, but it also has this pretty fanciful architectural style. And so, you know, how would you describe what we're seeing when we look at that building? 
so fanciful is a good term. The carriage house is it's a curiosity of sorts. It's too big to be a stable and storage for carriages. It's too ornate for that more practical purpose. But there it is. Um, William Ladd spent time and effort and energy on that building. He hired an excellent architect, an Englishman named uh, Joseph Sherwin, who came to Portland about that time. And I think Sherwin was ready to really show people what he could do out here on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. He learned a lot of the styles of the East Coast. He was knowledgeable about latest designs. And the design of the carriage house itself, you might call a mashup between a late Queen Anne Victorian crossed with an East Lake stick style uh-huh, uh-huh. and then sprinkled liberally with English Tudor. But but truth be told, it's really a fully original design that's hard to classify other than calling it eclectic or fantastical. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, it makes me think of certain other art forms where, say, music uh, or, or painting, you know, uh, the most interesting ones are the ones that mix it up a little bit. Oh, he definitely, Sherwin definitely did that. He had skill, he had the chops, and he had a patron that wasn't afraid to spend the money. And there's a story that the building almost doubled in cost because Ladd personally picked out the best lumber for the building. (laughs) So well-designed and well-built and well-crafted. Wow, wow. In in specific terms, you asked about the building. Um, It's basically two and a half stories. Um, there's an image of the building in an aerial of that time that shows with its cupola, it's even taller than the Ladd Mansion, which, <laughs> mind you, had 30 rooms in it. Its a footprint's a little bit more than 3,000 square feet. It's on a one-eighth block site. So it's on a pretty good site. It's a huge building. It's uh, In form, it's pretty simple. It's a rectangle with a, a hipped roof that goes on. Uh, across one end of it. It terminates at a cross gable. There's lots of bits and pieces on this building. Do you mind if I spend a minute uh, talking about it? Yeah, sure. So, and it takes a minute too, because uh, the roofs are interesting. The dormers pop up and they break up that main roof. in the, in the gables of the dormers are what we call tracery, which must have given the carpenters great joy to create. And they're, they're just beautiful little elements. There's a number of windows. We're basically a stable. There's a lot of windows on this building. And the trim work extends out from the windows and creates a sort of lattice across the face of each elevation. Mm-hmm. And then behind that lattice are all sorts of um, siding elements. There's a horizontal uh, shiplap siding. There's a vertical shiplap siding. There's fish scale shakes, there's diamond shakes, there's embossed panels. We ran out of names for all the elements on this building. Yeah. There's there's uh, fanciful ornate brackets that hold up overhangs over the windows. This is an incredible building. And you get the sense that Sherwin, the architect, must have loved carpenters because he gave them a full chance to show their craft and skill. But I think he must have hated roofers because this was the most complex roof I have seen. And more so originally because... It not only did it have all sorts of gables working sometimes in contradiction to each other, but it had this cupola that sat on top that looked like something on one of the most ornate churches you would see in Portland. Mm-hmm. And, and this is a stable, mind you. Yeah. And the cupola was basically there, as far as we know, to help vent the hayloft. It was just basically a big ventilator mm-hmm. of sorts. Um 
the roof itself was a metal shingle roof. Um, it had a uh, tracery across the top ridge of it. This thing was incredible to look at. And from any distance, from uh, far away or from up close, you would have never guessed this thing would have been a carriage house. <laughs> I, I'm just, you know, like it's funny the things that are coming to mind as you're describing all this. First of all, I was just laughing, thinking that you had to kind of basically apologize for how much detail you're going to go into describing the architecture of this horse stable. But I was sort of thinking of like, a, um, you know, one of those like fancy wedding cakes or something <laughs> like that. It almost seems like the architectural equivalent or maybe like somebody who who dies and they leave, uh, you know, some elaborate thing to their cat. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And when I walked by it, uh, it raised all those questions to me of what is this building? Why is it here? Yeah, yeah. I was uh, just thinking uh, I would love to hear about your first encounter with the building. And and, uh, that kind of leads into my next question anyway about, um, you know, how you got involved with the preservation effort and and what you encountered, what was going on uh, a little over a decade ago when that all shook down. So uh, my first experience, of course, was as a pedestrian asking the question, what is this and why is it here? Um, it became more intense in the early 2000s, uh, 2000, actually 2005, when I was on the uh, Historic Resources Committee of the AIA, and mm-hmm. that's the American Institute of Architects. And people who are doing development in the city would come to this group and show them their development for comment and to prepare them to go in for uh, the review process with the city. Mm-hmm. And we had the first Christian church come in with their architects and show us how they were planning to redevelop the site. And, and they own an entire downtown block where a quarter of it sat their church. Mm-hmm. And through a variety of domino effects, real estate domino effects, they were starting to fear that they would lose their congregation because they were going to lose their parking to mm-hmm. park their congregation and it was time to develop their asset, which was that full block minus their church. And so they showed us designs. Um, and on the north half of the block was a tower that a developer would create to kind of help pay for this. And then there was the church on the south and west corner. And on the south and east corner where the carriage house used to be was a new fellowship hall. And they're presenting this to preservationists and architects who know immediately that there's something wrong with the picture. There's no carriage house on that site anymore. And they said, yeah, we, we just didn't have room for it. Um, but if somebody wants it, they're happy, we're happy to give it to them for a buck. Take it away. Take it off the site. We don't want to demolish it, but we can't develop with it. Wow. And there was so much buzz in the room about this that I thought it'd be interesting to have a larger vetting of the issue. So um, I called a meeting when I was working at Fletcher Far, I would call the meeting after hours to anybody who was interested in talking about it, forgetting we get a small handful and we got over 30 people. Wow. And so it really showed the interest and the inclination of Portlanders to do something about that project, that building. And so that was the genesis of what eventually became the Friends of the Lad Carriage House. And our goal was to do what it takes in collaboration with a whole host of stakeholders to find a way to save this building. That's great. And as you know, there was another building on site too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the Rose Friend building, which the Rose Friend Apartments, uh, a 1913 uh, courtyard uh, brick uh, apartment building. Exactly, five stories. It was part of that second wave that developed, came into the area where the the wealthier folk were moving from their houses to mansions in Dunthorpe and Portland Heights, and then the multifamily housing came into that South Park block area, including the Rose Friend Apartments. Mm-hmm. And it's a gorgeous building done by a talented architect. Uh, the first Christian church 
owned it and was using it for residential. Yeah, basically uh, affordable housing, right? It was, yeah. So, you know, they kept it alive and kept it in decent shape. But that was the tough building to deal with on the site um, because it was large, five stories, unreinforced masonry. How do you put parking underneath that? And uh, they were only going to be able to park three quarters of the block anyhow because they couldn't build under the church. And so it, it became the cork in the bottle and it had to go. Mm-hmm. And we talked at length about that because, frankly, the carriage house had all the credentials for a historic property. Uh, it was a Portland City landmark, one of the first ones uh, in 1970. It was listed in the National Register. It was recognized. It had the name, the pedigree, everything about the carriage house said, this needs to be saved. Uh, the Rose Friend was no less attractive in its own way, but it didn't. It was not listed in the National Register. Yeah, It was a rank two in the Historic Resources Inventory. So it just didn't have the pedigree that would allow it to come up in conversation on how to save the building. Plus, it, you, you couldn't pick it up and move it. Mm-hmm. It was just too heavy. So that was that was unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. It was something that was uh, pretty dramatic at the time. I, I wrote about it, as you know, and, and I was a big fan of the Rose Friend Apartments. But uh, this whole process, uh, I have to say, inspired me because uh, a few years later, I ended up being uh, part of a group that f- co-founded a group called Friends of Memorial Coliseum. And uh, where do you think I got the idea from? you know, the friends of Lad Carriage House. Um, and and I also had been through uh, seeing the Rose Friend apartments torn down. And so uh, I felt a sense of motivation, like I maybe if I could get involved earlier or or various other dominoes could fall, that maybe the, the, the story could, the outcome could be different uh, uh, for the Coliseum than it was for the Rose Friend. And so, uh, you know, um, it wasn't the first time that a beautiful building has come down and, and, you know, we all have to, I think, kind of stop and mourn it a little bit. And, and uh, that's certainly true for me and the Rose Friend, and I know it is for you too. Uh, but, you know, um, the fact is that it could have been two casualties and uh, and there was only one. There was only one. And, and I like to remind people that there's three historic buildings. There were three historic buildings on the site. There was the Rose Friend, there was the Carriage House, and there was the First Christian Church. Mm-hmm. And their plan saved two of them. And that's not too entirely bad. And if it encouraged somebody like you to go save another important building, okay, well, it served a decent purpose in its death. And as you know, the day that they moved the carriage house off the site temporarily was the exact day they started chomping into the Rose Friend Apartments. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. friends the friends felt, we asked the developer if it was possible that we could save certain aspects of the Rose Friend to be used somewhere else. And, and as you mentioned, it's a split block building. And so at the center entry point was a was an archway mm-hmm. with a pentamented top. It was a masonry structure. And we asked that that be saved and relocated on the new development. So they did do that. And then they certainly didn't have to. Yeah. Um, but it's it's a it's a minor shadow. It's a minor echo of what the Rose Friend was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think what it really shows, Brian, is there was a wave of development in that part of the city because the commercial district was coming. Mm-hmm. And it was coming for a lot of buildings and a couple of them survived the many, many waves of development, and, and partly because the First Christian Church saved things, saved things on their site and reused them. Mm-hmm. And then when it came time for them to actually save their own um, organization, they had to put a plan into effect. And it, and it shows how difficult it is to stop that tide of change. Mm-hmm. 
because, I mean, it took a full court effort to save the carriage house. And, and like I said, the carriage house had everything going for it. It had the pedigree. It could be picked up and moved. It was big, but not too big. Mm-hmm. Um, it, everybody liked the building. It had the, the, the historic merits. It had everything going for it, and it still was a minor miracle that it survived to 2005, and it was a major miracle that it was saved to this day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So to, to kind of pick up the storyline, um, the friends were working in partnership with the developer who was pretty cautious at first because I think he thought we might have been this um, loud, rabid activist group. But we knew that we had to work with people to make this work. And the developer was one of the main entities. So it was the first Christian church. And once they realized we're here to help uh, everybody and find the win-win, I think things got a little easier on that front. Um there was, we had two initial goals. One is to talk them into keeping the building. Mm-hmm. Best thing to go. And it was the first thing I got tossed out. Uh, no, no, that's not possible. So we said, well, can you move the building and then do your development, move it back? And they said, no, once it's up and off, it's pins, it's gone. Uh, good luck to it, wherever it lands. So that became our focus for over a year. And this is 2006. We were trying to figure out um, where to move the building. And we were vetting developers' offerings and trying to find pathways through the city. All that was more difficult than you can ever imagine. Yeah, yeah, because I've seen houses moved off their sites, but never a quarter block building. Yeah, and a tall and heavy. It's about uh, over 300 tons, this building (laughs) was. And there was two plans. One was to cut it in half. Uh, which is a doable thing to do. And the other one is to move it whole. If you moved it whole, and there was a um, gentleman who had a site in the South Portland Historic District at Laird Hill that said, hey, I've got a site, I'll take the building. But to get the building there would have left a slug trail demolition through the city. And I mean, the, uh, the carriage house would have moved and would have been cheek to cheek of every building down every street. So every street tree would have had to have been removed, every pole out of its way, and, and it just didn't seem tenable to save a building and cause that much destruction. So we were stuck. And and the developer, frankly, at the same time was stuck as well. And this was uh, Opus Northwest. Mm-hmm. So big development company wants to take advantage of the condo boom in the, you know, the 2000s, mm-hmm. comes to Portland. They were up in Seattle as well. And this was going to be their f- showcase first development. And they were stuck. They were stuck for a variety of reasons. It had to do with zoning issues. They decided to bring in a partner, a local partner. So they brought in uh, Carroll Investments, owned by John Carroll. Mm-hmm. And John Carroll's a Portlander, um, really. I mean, he's he's done the uh, McKenzie Lofts and the Gregory mm-hmm. and the Elliott. So tremendous amount of success doing really high quality buildings with Ankara Moise and his architect. So John and Anchor Moisen came in and uh, they looked at our plan because John made a promise that he would not uh, progress any plan that was to the detriment of the carriage house. Right out of the chute, that's what he said. So he looked at our plan of trying to have this building relocated and said, give me a month. Can you give me a month and I'll come back with a plan? And that was his kind way of saying that plan isn't going to work. So we did. And it was uh, over the holiday season, January 2007, John came back and said, what about this? What if we do this? What if we pick up the building and we move it a block and a half away and park it in a parking lot and build our five stories of parking on the on the uh, site, mm-hmm. put a platform on top of it, bring the carriage house back, park it on top of that platform in its same location, 
finish the outside of the building, get it ready for new use and sell it. Would that make you guys happy? And, and, and we just said, that's the best of all worlds. We can't imagine that. Mm-hmm. He had the epiphany basically that that Chevron station next door was going away. Is that where it didn't it go like almost just to, directly across the street? Not quite. So it went up and across and it was in the parking lot of the Sixth Church of Christ Scientist who um, had a parking lot that they would run out to folk. And um, so we took about maybe a third of that parking lot. And, and I thought it was good karma because as you know, Lad would give money to start churches, and this was a way maybe a church kind of gave back to help the Lad carriage house, house a bit. And, and, and to save it from another church. Well, <laughs> possible. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, but the, the carriage house was off-site for 16 months, and um, the team, and at that point, um, Opus Northwest decided that we're too big to do this small, delicate little project. I mean, one of their first projects in the area was they did Bridgeport Village, developed and built an entire shopping center. Mm -hmm. And so to do this delicate little, you know, wood-framed house was just, they they didn't want to spend one brain cell on it. So they were very wise in hiring a venerable development with Art DeMiro to develop it and Craig Kelly to sell it. And that was the goals. Let's get it developed. And the building has to be done. The carriage house has to be done and ready for sale at the same time the lad tower's done. Want it all done at the same time. So we were off-site for 16 months doing everything we can on the building at that point. And then it very carefully moved back in the fall of 2008 and was um, then finished out in what we call a core and shell development. So we finished the, uh, the entire outside of the building, done and done. And the inside uh, had stairs and an elevator and was cleared out ready for another use. And if you don't mind, I'd, we'll, we'll talk about the church and the Chevron station because yes, that's I, the first domino to fall. Uh-huh. So the church was lucky. And they, the first Christian church had been on that site since the 1880s mm-hmm. in various forms. Their current building is a 1923 building that has beautiful povey stained glass in it. So I think they've been good stewards of their buildings and of the site in general. Um, but they needed two things to hold their congregation. Um, they needed parking, first and foremost, because a lot of their congregation no longer walks to the church like mm-hmm. they did back in the 1800s. They drive from great distances, and they have to park. And they used to park across the street at the Chevron station. And the Chevron sta- – it was a win-win because Chevron says, we don't need this Sunday morning. So, yeah, you bet. You pay us a little bit of money. You can park here. But in the 2000s, everybody was developing any parcel they could for condos, and that half block was slated for development, which was domino one to fall. And then the church says, we can't park our congregation. We lose our congregation. So that was domino potentially two to fall. And that triggered all this um, sort of redevelopment scenario. But I think, frankly, one of the advantages of the carriage house is that it's had relatively few owners – who were kind owners, who who took care of the building. And the church did it from 1971 right up until about 2005. And then when time came, they couldn't figure out how to keep or save the building, um, but they didn't want it demolished either. So I, I give them a tremendous amount of credit as a, as a good steward of that building up until that time. Mm-hmm. And when the building eventually was returned to the site and finished out, it was on its own parcel and a courtyard wraps around it that allowed access to other church functions. And, and this is the second, and it was kind of a quiet miracle, I think, was that when John Carroll 
talked with Anchor Moisson, and Steve Poland was the uh, um, partner charge at that time. They f- they figured out how to keep the carriage house, keep that block quarter block available for the carriage house, and it was basically to put all the church functions that they were losing. They were losing offices. They were losing their fellowship hall, their choir room. To put that in the back half of the Lad Tower, the portion of the Lad Tower that faces the property line, and you're not going to get a lot of good use in that space. You know, retail doesn't want to be there, and so they did that, and then they created the courtyard to daylight and provide access to those church functions and all that. Really careful sort of um, uh, strategery allowed the carriage house to come back to its site, mm-hmm. and so uh, to me that was that was an incredible sort of out-of-the-box way of thinking that really was the genesis of the whole project to save the project. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it really does seem like it needed uh, a little creative ingenuity. And I, I don't mean to literally vilify First Christian Church, just to speak maybe to the fact that uh, it, it gets ambiguous sometimes yeah. uh, and that um, even those who want to do the right thing uh, sometimes uh, become the stewards of buildings that get torn down. You know, I remember someone talking to me about uh, a wonderful historic building, the Ancient Order of United Workmen Temple, and how they didn't want to tear it down, but their hands were tied and that sort of thing. And I think also it was just a surprise to me at the time because, you know, sometimes we tend to vilify developers who tear down uh, uh, beautiful buildings or, or sort of change the character of a, a neighborhood. And it was, I guess... A little bit of a uh, maybe I was naive at the time and didn't really appreciate their their parking needs to the degree that I should have, which was a legitimate concern. Um, but it was the first time I had ever encountered a church that was going to be tearing down a beautiful historic building. And and like you say, they had very good reasons. And and uh, it, it's not as if they wanted that building to come down so much as they wanted to allow their congregation to prosper. But uh, it, it's just, uh, you know, it, it speaks to a lot of the challenges of historic preservation and also the fact that um, we as a city or as a county or, or state or federal government don't do enough to make things easier for them. We should have been making it uh, easier with incentives or whatever was necessary to to never put First Christian Church in a position like that. Yeah, and, that's, and, and as I mentioned earlier, the churches were – there was a lot of churches in that area. And time and tide came in and took out all the wood-framed houses except for like the carriage house and kept the churches. And and I always thought it was a curiosity. Why are there so many churches in a commercial zone in the downtown? Well, it wasn't at one time. And the first Christian church, uh, the minister – at that time says, we're in the business of saving lives, not saving buildings. I remember that. And I wasn't too fond of that. You kind of shake your head sideways and, and say, I understand what you're saying, that you are an institution with a purpose. Um, I just didn't like the phrasing and all that. First yeah. of all, we're a business, you know, <laughs> that, that just, just sort of describing Christianity in, in kind of transactional terms like that as a Christian is not my favorite thing. Um, but then to express such insensitivity um, uh, as if uh, buildings themselves are not expressions of culture and people and art at their best. And so he was sort of saying, expressing to me an insensitivity on several fronts. And, uh, you know, um, I also like to think that that he, he, someone in that position would have been uh, a bridge builder, um, not someone speaking dismissively about a legitimate concern like historic preservation. Yeah. They had, so he can piss off. Well, you know? and, and he did. They had particular challenges with that minister. And um, 
he eventually left that congregation, I think, for the betterment of the congregation. But the the, the congregation itself was kind of split. Um, they liked the building, but being mindful that they had been taking care of that building for a long time, and after a while, you just see it as a, as a money pit. Wow. And they were ready, I think, for a bit of a sea change. But I have to tell you, when uh, all I'm talking about is phase one of the corn shelf, saving the building, getting it back on its site. Once it was back there, I think the church uh, folk were very happy to have it back there. And when phase two kicked in and a restaurant went in there, I think they became one of the best neighbors for that uh, use. Yeah. Well, more power power to them. Um, well, uh, this has been a great conversation, Paul. And, and I feel like I could talk to you all day about this stuff and about historic preservation. But I, I really appreciate you coming on the show and uh, really congratulate you and all the friends of the Lad Carriage House on, on what you did. Thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care. You too. This podcast has been made possible by our local sponsor, Mutual Materials. They also help make Portland possible in a way, since a lot of this city was built with their products. That cool old brick building, it could be Mutual Materials. And the exposed brick wall designed into a coffee shop or store, it might be Mutual's slim brick tile. What about outdoor spaces? Paved patios, retaining walls, fire pits? Those might be made with Mutual Materials too. For over 120 years, Mutual Materials has been building beauty that lasts across the Northwest. We're joined by Tracy Simpson from Idea Incorporated, a local interior design firm. Tracy received her Bachelor of Interior Architecture degree from the University of Oregon. She also spent a decade at Fletcher Farr Ayat, an excellent local architecture firm where she was the Director of Interior Design. Her recent projects include interiors for the Found Hotel in San Francisco, as well as the Sheraton Portland Airport Hotel and the new AC Hotel Marriott in San Jose. Tracy, thanks for joining us on In Search of Portland. Thank you for having me. So about this Raven and Rose and the Lad Carriage House, uh, I'd love to just ask you about getting started. And uh, I imagine it must have seemed like kind of a unique challenge, but also a pretty special opportunity. You know, it's this historic building, but it's also this, you know, barn. <laughs> so what, what were you thinking? Well, you know, by the time we got a hold of it, it was long, long since had not been a barn. Um, <laughs> But um, I was introduced to the project by Paul Falsetto, the architect with Carlton Hart. And Paul and I had worked together at Fletcher Far Ayad and had worked on a few other historic projects together. So it was a good fit. They didn't have someone who had hospitality or restaurant experience working with them and so brought me on board. Um, it was, you know, it's kind of a dream project in some ways. We, I had worked previously getting trying to get a law firm to fit in there because law firms had been in the building prior um, a few times, but the firm had grown to the size where I couldn't quite get enough people in to make it work. And I always thought it didn't really, it wasn't great as an office space. Um, yeah. It's just such an interesting building visually that it wanted to be something else. So when... Um, Lisa Migrant was looking at it for a restaurant. We were super excited to talk with her about it and about what her vision was for for serving food in Portland. Yeah. And uh, what were you hearing from her? What what was that vision as you were hearing it in its early stages? I mean, I've been to Raven and Rose many times, uh, but I'm curious, like, if she knew exactly what she wanted then or, or, you know, how did she strike you? 
She is a very interesting young woman. She is um, an educated chef. She went to culinary school in Ireland and um, then worked at Chez Panis in Berkeley. Oh, wow. So she, I hope I have that right, but I'm pretty sure I do. <laughs> Um, yeah. Very much part of the farm to table movement and very much a part of wanted to have the vision that this should be the kind of place that you went on a special occasion, but it was also neighborhood and people could spend time. It wasn't about turning over the tables very quickly. People could sit there and spend a few hours and drink and talk and eat and be with their neighbors uh, or be with their friends or have a, a huge celebration too. Um, she really saw it, saw it as a multifunctional space. And um, what about the kind of style and, and um, mood that you were able to evoke there? You know, it's, it's um, part of it is patterning and part of it, a lot of it I think is lighting and the materials and stuff like that. And uh, I wondered if, if um, you know, like when I'm writing, sometimes something I'm writing will just sort of write itself and I can sit down in a half hour and crank it out. And other times I really have to deliberate about what I want to say. And so I'm <laughs> curious, you know, um, you know, what type of project this was for you and Lisa as you started to um, decide on some of those things. Like you mentioned the booths, but, you know, there's a whole kind of uh, interior design, of course, can be almost like a little bit like set design for a movie or something. And so, um what kind of did you was it really intuitive for the for you and the client how you wanted the, I imagine it would have been obvious that you wanted some kind of sense of warmth and coziness mm-hmm. uh, um, what were you thinking there yeah you know obviously it's a pub I mean that's that was the vision that to have it a pub and so then you start to look at modern pubs and traditional pubs and you know what does that mean and obviously it was a bank blank slate on the inside the exterior was prescribed and it was very cozy looking and very interesting. So how do we take the interior, use what little material there was left to use that was original fabric and then add to it, but don't make it look, you know, not like a stage set, but also, you know, to be truthful. So you kind of know visually what's new and what's old. I mean, that first area, when you come in, the ceiling is actually um, the wood decking that was there previously. And that was the only historic fabric on the inside that really was saved and there to uh-huh. use. And the rest of it, every, everything is new. And you can see that it is in the style, but still new. So it was in some ways easy because, you know, we're going to use some dark woods with some warm tones to it. We're going to use nice patterns. We're going to use materials that... Um, have substance and that are true. We're always going to use real stone and um, on the floors, if we're going to use stone, we're not going to use anything fake. Um, But then playing with the scale of those materials to break down the spaces and give it some interest because you don't want everything the same. You know, you want different kinds of things for different seating areas. Um, Yeah. And then adding to that with the lighting, with the historic nature of things, um, we had a lot of discussion about TVs. <laughs> I bet. I bet. <laughs> yeah, so where did you come down on that? I, I don't remember seeing a TV in there, but may, but I haven't ever sat at the bar. Well, upstairs in the bar, the mirror behind the, the bar is actually a TV. <laughs> <laughs> and that was one of the few, that was very early on in that sort of flat screen technology of making it a mirror and making it look built in. And so... It, it doesn't look like a TV, but it is. And then downstairs, there's a little tiny kind of one kind of tucked around the corner. Um, 
because we, you know, it's just not a traditional element and we didn't, you know, want to necessarily include it. But there are times when you might need it in both spaces. So, you know, you just, you don't know. And so you have to kind of plan for everything. But um, there might be an episode of Grimmon featuring the restaurant itself. (laughs) Exactly. You never know. Or, you know, that you just think of, you know, major sporting events or, you know, just something. So we um, we tried it's to touch those in and be, have them be as invisible as possible unless they were on. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting question too because you 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 said you know that it's a pub and I and I w- certainly wouldn't disagree with you. You would know better than me. And uh, but uh, at first I was thinking, really, is it a pub? Oh, I guess it is. You know, like a it's an it's an upscale pub, maybe it's you a might say. Um, and it's interesting that that restaurants like this um, manage to kind of walk a sort of I don't know philosophical tightrope or something. That's not quite the right phrase, but but you know, being casual enough uh, to you know when you're calling yourself a pub, that kind of implies a kind of really casual everyday type of place or or you know someplace you can drop in in your t-shirt um but you know this is food from a chef who used to work at the best restaurant in the united states uh chez panisse and Mm -hmm. and i've had some prime rib there that was you know over the moon um and so you know i'm interested in the idea of how you kind of achieve that sort of sense of balance as as with a client like with a restaurant like that as your client like it's it's casual but it's it's more than t-shirt and you know 50 inch screen tv yeah uh and budweiser (laughs) ads you know and yet it's not a tavern on the green either um and so i imagine a lot of restaurants try and uh exist in some kind of middle ground like that they do and keeping in mind that you know Design-wise, the middle ground is maybe the same. It's just the service that changes and the menu that changes. So mm-hmm. visually, those two things, do they look that different? Maybe not. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't sound too silly, you know, I wonder if you could sort of like visualize for me or for us a little bit, like the kind of overall experience, like, or that you've had there, like um, what comes to mind for you? I know when anybody goes to a restaurant, it's a combination of things. It's it's the it's the service and it's the kind of sequence and pacing of things, and it's the lighting and it's obviously the food as much as anything or more than anything. But mm-hmm. um, like if you get um, any kind of warm fuzzy feeling from eating, having eaten at Raven Rose or imagining doing so or being in that building. I wonder if you could just sort of talk about, you know, the way all those design choices come together on you as the diner. <laughs> okay. I think, you know, a lot of it is, is even when, you know, it's the beginning of lunch service, let's talk about that when there's, you know, you're the first diner in there, but then, you know, it starts to, to fill up and you can hear snippets of conversation and you're sitting at this great, you know, booth and it's got this William Morris fabric in the back and there's a design on the floor and you can see over there, there's some artwork on the wall. That's um, it's a beautiful pastel and it's of a stag, you know, coming through the forest. And then you look at the menu and it's, you know, it's rabbit, which is not on every menu in Portland. It's a great unusual thing and or venison or something like that. There's usually one thing on the menu that's slightly just different than what you would see everywhere else. And, you know, then you start to hear the clink of the glasses and just people working and moving and 
you know, so it's, it's hitting all of your senses, right? And then you start to smell the food and everyone's so nice and everyone's so happy to see you. And um, yeah, I miss it so much, don't you? It makes me think about some of these experiences and what they share in a time of pandemic where we're not doing them. You know, this Saturday, there will be no game at Autzen Stadium as we're uh, talking in, in late September. And uh, it could be a restaurant. You know, I miss movie theaters and stuff like that. But at least in in their absence, it, it, it makes me think about uh, the common threads between some of the uh, experiences that we're all missing right now, uh, whether it's a, a restaurant or any number of other different types of experiences. You and I, before the interview, were uh, talking about our mutual love of Oregon Ducks football and, and how special the game day experience is, the kind of procession into Autzen Stadium and seeing them run on the field and being kind of enveloped by that bowl-shaped stadium and the energy, the collective energy there. And and so much of what you were talking about uh the experience of being in Raven and Rose was was about feeling a kind of special energy. Um, and I guess if we're all missing out right now on going to concerts and movie theaters and restaurants and and sporting events, it, it does really, at least for me at least, I wonder if this is true for you, sort of thinking about um, what that experience is when we go out and, and want to be um, kind of in a crowd and part of something larger than ourselves. I miss it so much, and I think about it all the time, and that's one of the things that I think is an essential human need is to be in those sorts of situations, to be in groups, and to feel that you're a part of something. And I really do feel like once we do have a vaccine or we've got, you know, something, some sort of control on this, that restaurants are going to come back big because people have so much pent-up energy to want to do this sort of thing, see their friends. I mean... I have weekly Zoom calls with my friends, but it's not the same. It's just not the same. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It's, and I it's think you're right. Not as much fun. And, you know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and just, It'll be but, nice to get back to a lot of things. It will be nice. But I think, you know, just, you know, what you just asked to the question of just kind of going through it in my mind. It's like, what do I love about it? And I love every single thing about it. Um, I love restaurants. I, you know, my very first job was um, at a little place called Farrell's. I don't know if you remember. Uh, <laughs> of course. That was uh, a place I desperately wanted to go on my birthday as a child. Exactly. And if you went to the one in Northeast Portland, I might have run that zoo for you. So, um <laughs> I, I think I remember like a player piano there. Oh, yeah. Um, and... W- that was the type of place where like kitty prizes would like come out of the ceiling or something uh or you know there were if it wasn't that exact thing there were, it was very much a kind of theatrical kid friendly ice cream parlor wasn't wasn't that it it was it had a lot of candy at the um exit so it hit all the buttons there was lots of music there was lots of ice cream but they had you know really strong kids menu it was a family restaurant they did serve alcohol so you know as a 16 year old i could work there as a waitress um, and Bob Farrell was a great, um, I mean, he was a great restaurateur. He was the give him the pickle guy, you know, always give him something extra and be hospitable and understand that people are spending their hard earned money. You have to give them an experience that they can't get anywhere else. And that's yeah. what dining out. And that's what Raven and Rose is. It's a place where you go and it's Portland, but it's not like necessarily Portland, any place else. And it's also, 
somewhat European and somewhat, you know, I mean, it has a lot of influences to it. And, mm-hmm. and that was the goal was to make it, you know, like other places, but like home too. So. Yeah. Yeah. It has real atmosphere and, uh, the building, it starts with the building, of course, but, um, not just any restaurant would have, um, fused real well like that with the building. And so it just seems like a kind of hand in glove situation and, uh, um, hopefully they will be there for a long time. Yeah, it's, but it is great to see some of our favorites around town, um, utilizing either their streets or their parking lots and putting up tents or, um, you know, just finding ways to stay open. So, yeah, yeah. Well, great. Well, Tracy, thank you so much for uh, joining us on In Search of Portland, and it's been great talking with you. Great talking with you. Thank you so much. And now another quick word of thanks to our show's sponsor, Mutual Materials. If you're a homeowner, you might want to go online and check out Mutual's Natural Stone Catalog at mutualmaterials.com forward slash resources. You can also visit their showroom, for now by appointment that is, at 2175 Northwest Raleigh Street. For over 120 years, Mutual Materials has been building beauty that lasts across the Northwest. In Search of Portland is also sponsored by Capstone Partners, which plans, finances, implements, and manages commercial real estate investments for investors and organizations across the Pacific Northwest. Capstone's roots run deep with decades of experience and solid relationships. Living and working in Portland and Seattle means this local company is poised to find and act on unique opportunities that outside firms never even see. For more information, visit capstone-partners.com. Thanks again to Tracy Simpson and Paul Falsetto for joining us. Listening to those interviews and thinking about the Lad Carriage House and the stories coming from this block, I'm reminded of that old Donny Hathaway song called joy and pain, I think. There seems to be a series of dualities that today mark the block where the carriage house and the lad tower and the first Christian church remain standing today. There is first the life of William Ladd, full of wealth and political power, yet his longest lasting built legacy turned out to be not the mansion he built in defiance of the Civil War, but the barn for carriages, necessary because of his paralysis. I think most of us would easily choose the use of our legs over membership in the upper 1% tax bracket. There is also the duality of the Lad Carriage House and the Lad Tower that it sits next to. Their heights differ by 20 stories. They were completed 125 years apart. One is contemporary in style, all glass and steel, smooth surfaces and sharp right angles while the other is an almost overwrought concoction of Victorian-era embellishments. As we talked about in the Paul Falsetto interview, there is the duality of the affordable housing that used to exist next door to the Ladd Carriage House, the beautiful Rose Friend Apartments, 
and then the Lad Tower that now stands on that site. There is additionally the duality of a full Rosefriend Apartments before its demolition, and the seemingly never full Lad Tower, in which, by my recent count, 50 of its 200 units were available, and which originally was converted from condos to apartments back in 2007, when only a fraction of its intended condo units sold. In a certain sense, Lad Carriage House is caught between another duality, that of the residential area that used to exist here near the South Park blocks, and the high-density downtown core along Broadway that it's part of today. I think that's a big part of why I love the Lad Carriage House, and a lot of other people do too. It stands out way more in 2020 than it would have in 1883, actually, even though it was arguably one of a kind back then. There is also, of course, the duality we've all felt between pre-pandemic life as we remember it, the vibrant life you would have found on this block and at this restaurant in the Lad Carriage House, and the reality we've experienced since spring of 2020, one of closed restaurants and schools and offices and bars and churches, a reality of wearing masks and worrying about the future. Whenever I've eaten at the Raven and Rose restaurant, my memory is of cozy, warm interiors and a convivial atmosphere. But as the pandemic has set in, we've seen an astonishing number of beloved local restaurants go out of business. But maybe someday soon, the duality will be between the vibrancy of post-pandemic life compared to how we felt back in 2020. I grew up working in my dad's restaurant, so I guess I feel a special affinity for local restaurant owners, people who put their heart and soul and their continuous labor into these businesses, people who start kneading bread dough or boiling bones or broth early in the morning, not just because they love food, but because they love sharing it with people. Yet architects too, at least the best ones, base their designs on generosity. Architecture may be in part about creating fanciful buildings and experiences, but it starts more simply than that, as shelter, as a series of rooms where we live out most of our lives. How great it is that an architect from Manchester, England, born in 1836, Joseph Sherwin, could design a building around the world in Portland, Oregon, one that wasn't even meant for human occupation, and have it still be standing on that same site 185 years after his birth, even after an alliance of property developers and even a church conspired for it to be torn down. If you think about it, the horse-drawn carriage was ultimately undone by the rise of the gas-powered automobile in the early 20th century. But this carriage house has lasted so long, it actually may outlive the age of the internal combustion engine itself. It almost makes me wonder if someday I'll be able to travel to the Lad Carriage House by jetpack. In Search of Portland has been brought to you by X-Ray FM. Thanks to our volunteer producer, Jonathan Covington Brim. Another big thank you to the band Beauty Pill and songwriter Chad Clark for providing music for In Search of Portland. Thanks as well to Maxwell Griffin for graphic design, including our podcast logo, and to Nikolai Kruger for creating original artwork to go with each building we feature on In Search of Portland. 
In fact, you can find every episode of In Search in Portland at xraypod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you made it this far, thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time on In Search of Portland. Bye for now.